0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a look at the Kamoinge Workshop. My first guest is Sarah Eckhart, the curator of Working Together, Lewis Draper and the Kamoinge Workshop at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. The VMFA is closed right now due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The exhibition is scheduled to be on view through June 14th. From Richmond, the exhibition will travel to the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, and of the Cincinnati Art Museum. Working Together is accompanied by a revelatory catalog that I can't recommend enough. Amazon offers it for just $32. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. It's a total steal. Working Together features nearly 180 photographs by 15 of the early members of the Kamoinge Workshop, a collective of Black artists dedicated to photography during the 1960s and 70s. The exhibition had its roots in the work and archive of Lewis Draper, Richmond-area native, who moved to New York in 1957, and who built a community of photographers who came together as the Kamoinge Workshop. The VMFA acquired Draper's archive in 2015. On the second segment, art historian Ann Monahan on Horace Pippin. Before we get to this week's show, a reminder that we put out a pandemic bonus episode this week. It features two artists who had exhibition of new work all but open and close on the same day. The two artists with whom I chatted are Paul and Impadji-Sapoya and Kate Shepard. Look forward in your podcatcher feeds. They were two really great conversations. Sarah Eckhart, after the break. (music) The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents a special, free, live streaming of the Javerni document, the 2019 film by Dallas-based artist and filmmaker Jatovia Gary, on Wednesday, April 22nd at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. The film will be followed by a Q&A between Gary and Hammer Museum Associate Curator Aaron Christoval. RSVP and find details about streaming the film and joining the Q&A at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Ebony G. Patterson While the Dew is Still on the Roses featuring the work of artist Ebony G. Patterson, born in Jamaica in 1981. This is the most significant exhibition of the artist's work to date, presented within a new installation environment that evokes a night garden. This exhibition will be on view at the Nasher Museum when it is safe to reopen. The museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the art press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Sarah Eckhart, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start off by introducing your protagonists. Uh, One is human, uh, and one is quasi-institutional. So first, who was Louis Draper?
1: Louis Draper was born here in Richmond, Virginia, actually just over the city line in Eastern Henrico. He moved to New York in 1957, and he studied there with artists like Eugene Smith before he became one of the key founders of the Kamoenge Workshop
0: in 1963. And then what was the Komenge Workshop?
1: So the Kamoinge Workshop, and a lot of people act, actually uh, ask how to pronounce it, and I will say that different artists actually have slightly different pronunciations of it, but I go with... That's so art world. Yeah, I go with Lewis Draper's pronunciation, which was Kamoenge. And we have that pronunciation actually because in 1982, Carrie Mae Weems a video recorded, Al Sandana was the filmed it and Carrie Mae Weems was interviewing the artists. And so we have about 17 minutes of that footage left, which is the only video footage we have of Lewis Draper. And that's really crucial because that's how I know how Lewis Draper pronounced Kamoenge.
0: So what what did Kamoinge do? Was it a a photo agency or a cooperative or an ad hoc professional development group or dot dot dot?
1: It operated on many levels. So first of all, it really came together first as a network of African American photographers who met each other professionally and had formed friendships. So there were two groups. One was called Group Thirty Five. And the other group was called Kamoinge. And Lou was a member of both groups. I think it was Ray Francis who was a part of group... 35, talked with Lou about the fact that they should bring these two groups together because they really were, as African-American artists, they were working in isolation. And so I think it started more as a social alliance, as a group of photographers who realized they had common interests and that they also were facing discrimination and that coming together would be helpful in that way. And then I would say over the next year and a half, they really became more formal in terms of membership, a voting process, dues. They produced portfolios and opened a gallery. and then they also made a commitment to making more images of their own communities around them and addressing what they saw as the or what they were experiencing as, as the negative images of African Americans in the press at the time. So all of those things came together kind of over the first year and a half.
0: Were they all in New York?
1: Yes. So all of the photographers were in New York. They're often strongly associated with Harlem, and I would say the majority of the artists were in Harlem. However, at least two of the artists lived on the Lower East Side, and then Lewis Draper moved. So he he actually rented a room from Langston Hughes, in Langston Hughes' building in Harlem for probably the first three or four years of the Kamoinge Workshop, and that was a really important relationship. Several of the artists speak of Langston Hughes as a very willing mentor who was happy to look at their photographs and talk with them about all all kinds of things. And after Langston Hughes passed away, Louis Draper lived in Brooklyn, he lived in the Bronx before he finally settled in New Jersey. So it's really, the, the artists lived around Manhattan.
0: In the catalog, Deborah Willis calls Kamoinge and the Black Photographer's Annual the, quote, two mainstays in the pantheon of African-American photography. What was the relationship, if that's the right word, between the two? Listeners may remember our show a couple years ago with Buford Smith, and we'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com.
1: I would say that the Black Photographer's Annual was not formally a part of Kamoinge, but I think that Buford Smith, who was a member of the Kamoinge Workshop and the founder of the Black Photographer's Annual would describe it, the idea as emerging from the Kamoinge Workshop and their many conversations about producing a book and increasing the publication opportunities for African-American photographers. But beyond that, then I think four of the five photography editors for the first edition were Kamoenge members. So Kamoenge was very involved editorially in the selections that were made for the Black Photographer's Annual.
0: Speaking of getting and doing and having professional work published, the show focuses on the first two decades of Kamoenge, so 63 to 82 and features work of the 15 members who, who joined in the first decade. So pretty early on, in late 63 and in early 64, Kamoingi photographers were urged toward the civil rights movement through a series of professional events, panels, institutional conversations. Ultimately, only one Kamoingi photographer, Herb Randall, would go south, but the Kamoingi photographers were plenty active in the north, especially as a result of these two professional events in late 63 and early 64. What were those events and what were the impacts on, on, on the Kamoengi group?
1: You know, ASMP in 1963 was very supportive of the civil rights movement and they had an initial meeting to talk about the need for more photographers to be making images of the civil rights movement But also to be making more images of the African-American experience. By and large, when you read the minutes from that that meeting, it was largely a a positive, supportive meeting. But it's clear from reading the minutes that followed in early 1964 that Roy D. Carava, who had been a member of ASMP, encouraged The leadership to think more about the discrimination that African-American photographers were facing within the field. And so they held a second meeting that was specifically about the discrimination that Black photographers were, were facing. My interpretation from reading the Minutes is that that was a much more fraught and tense meeting, which of course makes sense because the ASMP needed to look inwards to think about their own policies and about the process, hiring processes. So it's in that meeting that Roy DeCarava really speaks very clearly to systemic racism and the need to confront it as such, and that ideas that sort of talent would just rise to the top were not enough because plenty of talented black photographers were not getting jobs. And I think that that was that meeting as Louis Draper wrote in his own notes, was very much a call to action for the Kumoenge workshop as they started to think about who they were going to be as a group and what they were going to do. And I think that that's where archives to me are very exciting. And we're having the meeting minutes from 1964, Lewis Draper's meeting minutes from 1964 is really phenomenal because you can follow the dates of the ASMP meeting and then the dates of their meeting minutes and pretty much in the six weeks, two months following that ASMP meeting, they are hashing out their, essentially their mission statement, their purpose, and they decide that they want to be an artistic force within the Black community.
0: So that meeting was in in early 1964, and in the catalog, you present it as a kind of ad hoc mission-pointing event. Surely the August 3rd, 1964 cover of Newsweek magazine would have confirmed all of the Kamoingi groups' worst fears about even supposedly enlightened um, New York white institutions.
1: Absolutely. I think that is an example of a narrative that the white press already had in mind and so when photographs are taken the narrative is simply applied and so what you're referencing is this this moment when following the riots in Harlem that summer Roy DeCarava is given the assignment to photograph. And he actually calls on Kamoinge members. So he has on on the front cover, we can see Sean Walker Lewis Draper and Ray Francis, and it's a close-up of their faces, but Lewis Draper recalled very clearly that moment that they were actually having too much fun as friends to pose very seriously or to look angry, and that there was a white art director from Newsweek present with Rody Caraba while he was making the photographs, and he called them boys. He said, you boys don't look angry enough, and that Insult, of course, it made them angry, and Roy Ducarrava took the photograph, and then when it was published on the cover of Newsweek, it appeared with the headline, Harlem, Hatred in the Streets, which, of course, confirms this narrative that Newsweek basically went looking for.
0: If if I remember correctly, one of the figures on the cover, maybe it was Roy Francis, was playing chess outside of Harlem at the—oh, help me out.
1: Yeah, sure. So Sean Walker was able to share with me some recordings he made of meetings in the 1980s when the Komenge Workshop, several of the members were together and they were trying to recall their own history and the really beautiful, rich recordings and just all of these layers of memory from different members and different perspectives. But one of the memories that I, I, I found really interesting is that Ray Francis was, everybody was trying to remember where they were when the riots broke out. And Ray Francis clearly recalled that he had been playing chess at Columbia University when the riots broke out. And then you you pair that with this photograph on the cover of Newsweek with Ray Francis's image and the headline, Harlem Hatred in the Streets. And you have this very clear sense of the way that race is constructed and flattened by the media.
0: Let's transition from talking about Kamoingi as an institution and a group to talking about the individuals within it and the pictures they made and the subjects of those of those pictures. Are there any I mean, I, I, I appreciate we're talking about 15 people over 20 years here, but are there any particular themes or subjects that you found as as standing out and being a continuing interest or concern over the course of, of those two decades?
1: One of the first things that I noticed everybody had a lot of photographs of were children. I mean, of course, children make great photographs, and and there's a long history of photographs of children. The history of photography, there's nothing that special about that. Except that there is something, it's difficult when you're not actually looking at the photographs to describe, that there is some sort of aesthetic dialogue and cohesion, I think, to this body of work across many of the members that were participating in early 1960s. And it was really by going deep or really diving into Lewis Draper's work and his archive that I started to realize the larger cultural context for these images. And I was thinking about the context of school segregation, Brown versus Board of Education. And then I think what's difficult for people to understand when they're not from a specific place in the South, like Richmond, Virginia, is how strong the reaction was against Brown versus Board of Education. But here in Virginia, it was a very legal response, less of the physical violence that you might associate with the civil rights movement or you might see in in civil rights photographs and documents. But there was a lot of rhetoric here around school integration, and of course, Louis Draper was the exact same age as Barbara Johns, who was the student that led the walkout in Farmville, and a lot of people don't realize that Farmville in Virginia was one of the five cases that led to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And we know from Louis Archive that he was really keyed into the political process around integration and around the language of massive resistance, as it was called here, massive resistance to integration. So I was really trying to look at what he had written in college in his notebooks and how closely he was thinking about legal representation or the, or the legal system of representation and the failures of it as he specifically turned to visual representation, as he started to think about photography as a really powerful tool. And I realized that some of the first things, some of, some of the, the things that he was then keyed into were images of children. And I think it's difficult for me to separate his photographs in the 1960s of children from this larger conversation about the power of visual representation in the midst of the civil rights movement and its specific context of school integration.
0: One one of the interesting things about these pictures of children is that over and over again, The photographers, whether it's Louis Draper or Anthony Barboza or somebody else, is pushing the children to the edges of the rectangle. And other things, you know, take up 93% or whatever of, of, of the rectangle and the faces of the children are at the bottom or at the edge. Is there a conceptual underpinning or contemporary reason for that compositional framing?
1: I mean, I, I go to the one by Louis Draper where there's an abstraction in the background. And I, it's really interesting because I've always thought of that as almost this bringing together of abstraction and an, an image of a child. So you have what looks to me like almost like an Aaron Siskin, almost like he's quoting Aaron Siskin because you have the texture of the wall in the background. As far as a conceptual underpinning, that's a really it's a good question. I think of a lot of the images of children being almost breaking the frame. So you have like a window and a child is leaning out of the window. I'm not sure I have a, a good answer as far as a, a conceptual framework for why they were placing the kids in several of the photographs, like you're saying, kind of in the bottom edge of the of the frame. I have to think on that.
0: That, that, that picture, which is uh, untitled and is from sometime in the 1960s, definitely recalls Aaron Siskind and is one of a number of pictures in the show that also recalls paintings. In this case, um, Barnett Newman's 1952 Achilles. And we'll probably come to talking about a few places where it feels like the photographers in the show are, are looking at painting in addition to, to photography. You, you mentioned the mixing in single frames of representation and abstraction. And it's something that pops up in the show uh, again and again and again. Do you have a favorite example or two? And why do you think the photographers were interested in doing both in single images?
1: Well, let me just start with the framework of abstraction and street photography and the tension between those two. It's, of course, a a much larger tension in the history of photography and and really in, in art history in general. But I think that in their given situation in the 1960s, things were happening politically around them. I think there was this question of what they had the freedom to produce versus what they felt they should be producing. And that was a, an ongoing conversation really about artistic freedom versus what aesthetically a, a kind of ethical responsibility or 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 kind of what their artistic responsibility would be in responding to the civil rights movement as it was happening. And that's, of course, not, that's a much larger conversation that was happening with a lot of artists. What I saw was, particularly with an artist like Louis Traper, who had worked both in abstraction and in a kind of more documentary format from the beginning, and that's, that is apparent in his archive, that he must have kind of gone back and forth in waiting how important each was to him or what he would allow to come to the forefront artistically, given the just the different time periods or the conversations he was in at the time. I think that that was something he talks about later in his career as something he really had to work through. He, I think, wanted to often be working in abstraction, but felt like it would be, I don't, I don't want to say indulgent, but he didn't feel like it would be relevant at the moment, But I think he found ways. I I think, A, it's apparent that he's very engaged in the history of abstraction in what he'd been looking at as far as influences were concerned at the same time as I think he.
0: Uh, Let me let me jump in there. Uh, That reminds me that this conversation or consideration about whether black artists should be embracing abstraction or should be engaged in representative images and appointedly. Um, an urgently political way, is, is really the subject or a subject of Darby English's book, 1971, which, uh, which he came onto the show to discuss a few years ago. We'll have a link to that you know, on the show page as well. And while we're talking about this mixture of representation and abstraction within individual images, I mean, a great example is an Anthony Barbosa pick from the 1970s made in New York City of a man standing in front of a brick wall with a spectacular jacket on. And it seems to me like that's a really clear example of an artist looking for ways to engage two discourses at once.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. And also one of the things that I think is key there is that denial of what it means to have somebody's back turned to you. So it's not only that you have the abstract patterns of the bricks, and then you have the abstract pattern on the man's shirt. But then you have the fact that both faces of, of each of the subjects are obscured because you're looking from behind and and the woman's face is blocked by his shoulder. So there's this sense of presenting identity and obscuring identity at the same time. So I think that's a great it's a great example of, of of bringing those together, and I'm not sure actually whether that was taken as one of his fashion photographs. He would have to answer that question whether he made that as one of his photo shoots for Essence magazines. For Essence magazine, because that's one of the things that I think Erna Dugan wrote really beautifully about in in the exhibition catalog was the ways that we that art history has applied these categories like abstraction and street photography, and then has kind of limited conversations about work, you know, fashion photography or commercial photography. And Tony Barbosa's work from that period really is a operates on a borderline between the two where he is doing fashion photography for essence, but he's using street photography and he's thinking about abstraction and all of this is happening at once. And when we don't, the point the point that Arina makes is that when we don't take into account the work that's appearing in magazines by some of these photographers, we're actually limiting our our historical and our cultural understanding of their practice.
0: Speaking of those categories, the catalog throughout reminded me how much these categories, street photography, etc., were were really created by by the white photography world and white photography historians because across this catalog i kept thinking about how those categories don't really fit to what these artists were making the essayists a number of the essayists in the catalog don't kind of maybe come out and say that that specifically but many of them are many of you are are kind of pointing at it the barbosa fashion work you just mentioned is represented in the catalog by the presentation of a spread from the august 1971 issue of essence magazine which is problematic and and, and surely points to how overwhelmingly male Camwoindie was
1: yes i mean we with the exception of ming smith joining in 1972 which is actually as you're pointing out a year after that it definitely was a group of male photographers and i think that that also speaks to the conditions of photography and and the face uh, the conditions women were facing at the time as far as having fewer opportunities professionally and kind of as the in a sense Ming Joins Kamoenge at about the same time as the women's liberation movement is taking off. And that's not, I'm not trying to make a direct correlation there. I'm just sort of there, there are these cultural and historical trends, more opportunities are opening up for women in the seventies, just as Ming Smith, who had been a photographer for, she, well, her father had been a photographer, an amateur photographer, just as so many of the other Kamoinge members had had a family member who was an amateur photographer, which is a lot of a way that a lot of photographers became professional photographers. And that's that shift that was happening also at the same time when photography really was seen as either something that was a hobby or if it was done professionally, it was a photojournalist or commercial work. There was, there were very few opportunities for photographers to be fine artists and very few were collected by museums. So that's happening in the midst of that. And it's interesting when Ming talks about joining the group, it was Louis Draper that was her sponsor. So a little bit about the formal membership. You had to have a sponsor within Kamoinge to vote, to, to represent you when you brought your portfolio in, and then you were formally voted into the Kamoinge workshop. So Louis Draper was her her sponsor, but she talks about Kamoenge being the thing she needed to help her understand that photography could be a fine art as a mode of expression and that she could treat it as her primary mode of artistic expression. And I do think that having a female join the group then changes the dynamic of a group. How could it not in that sense? But I also think that she talks about it very much as thinking of them all as artists and that this was for her a professional organization where she could take her photography to the next level.
0: One quick note on that Essence Spread before um, moving on. Um, it's the text of the spread that is particularly jaw-dropping um, to read now, 50 years later. And yeah, it's something. Let's go back to Lewis Draper a bit. One of, one of his earliest works in the show, maybe his absolute earliest works in the show, predates the founding of Kamingi, and it's dated to somewhere between 1959 and 1961. It's called Congressional Gathering, It's striking for lots of reasons, I think several of which we're about to discuss. Could you tell us the story of the picture and what it is or might be, and thus kind of the layered histories to which the picture refers?
1: I I set out to write a few paragraphs about that photograph, and I wrote something like a 40-page essay about that photograph, because I had assumptions going in, and, and in fact those assumptions, I think, in many ways were confirmed by Lewis Draper's archive. So it is a picture of a sheet, or possibly when you look at the scale of the clothespins, just a a large dish towel hanging on a clothesline, and there are four clothespins that bring it to four points. And when you look at it really closely, in fact, you see that a fly has landed exactly where you would have an eye hole in a Ku Klux Klan robe. And it's a very eerie image and part of the privilege of having his archive is the fact that we have the negative so I could really study the negative and you can see how much dark room he must have done to produce the print. I wasn't just drawn to it because it was a dramatic image, I was also drawn to it because Lewis Draper reproduced it so often and included it in so many exhibitions through his lifetime and that was my clue or my sense that this was a really important image to him and also he he gave it a very clear title which was Congressional Gathering and he didn't frequently give clear titles to his works that he would repeat and certainly not such political titles and so i really wanted to figure out i had g- guesses as to why he named it Congressional Gathering as i think anybody would but i wanted a, a more specific context and so that is where his college notebooks came into play we have his college notebook from 1956, when he was a student at Virginia State, then college, now university in Virginia. And when you flip through it, there's all kinds of interesting material, all of his notes from his various classes. He was studying the Harlem Renaissance. He was studying economics. And in the midst of that is this two-page spread that lists all of the committee chairs of the 84th Congress, which was the current Congress in 1956. And then he's made these marks next to them. And he's noted all the Republicans, and then he's written Dem next to three names, but all of the rest of the names would have been Democrats, so I was trying to figure out why those three names. Well, it turns out those were the leaders of the Southern Manifesto, and the Southern Manifesto, I think, is one of those documents that we don't, at least I did not learn in my history of the Civil Rights Movement, and the Southern Manifesto was the response to Brown versus Board of Education from the 11 former Confederate states. And it became clear to me that it was the Virginia leaders, really, that led the, 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 the writing and promotion of the Southern Manifesto, and that Lewis Draper was very aware of that. And he's aware of that just before he decides to leave college, his second semester of his senior year, and go to New York to study photography. And so he talked a lot in his own, when he when he recalled that period, he would talk a lot about the Family of Man exhibition and finding that exhibition catalog on his bed and the power of the photographs convincing him he should be a photographer. And then he needed to find the photographers and he realized they were mostly in New York. He was going to have to go to New York to learn photography on that level. But what I found really interesting was that he, at the same time, was so closely analyzing congressional representation. And specifically, he was looking at he he had taken a quote from the Congressional Quarterly and transcribed it on the power of the Rules Committee to bring a bill to the floor or to block a bill coming to the floor. And so absolutely understanding the power that a Virginian, Harry Smith, had in blocking the civil rights bill at that time. And so to me, that shift was really key that he's thinking about congressional representation as he decides to make this shift to to visual representation. And one of the first images he then makes, or one of the first images we have that he repeatedly reproduced, was this image that he decides to title Congressional Gathering, sometimes with with Greenwich Village in parentheses next to it. So you also have a North and South dialogue that, that makes you aware of the fact that he made that image in the North, specifically in New York City. And so I think that that is this moment where he is taking, he's bringing a, a level of, of there's a political commentary in the
0: photograph. You know, I can't help but notice that the picture recalls the form of Sam Gilliam's draped canvases, which which Gilliam would not uh, start making in, in, for another decade until the late 1960s. Is there any reason to believe or suspect that Gilliam knew Draper's work or was looking at or thinking about Draper?
1: I don't think by the late 60s. By the 70s, you would have the Black Photographer's Annual as a way that so many of these photographs, not congressional gathering, but a lot of other images were circulating. I can't answer that for sure, but I think that most of the most of what Komoinge was producing was staying in exhibition spaces in New York in that period in the 60s. So he could have gone to a show in New York. I can't rule that out, but they were, you know, small shows that were happening in Harlem.
0: Note to Evelyn Hankins, who the Hirshhorn curator, working on a Gilliam retrospective at this very moment. This picture and a whole bunch of pictures in the show are expressions and investigations of patriotism and questionings of uh, the American democratic small d democratic project. I, I, I couldn't find myself a particular, a single way that multiple photographers were, were, were thinking through how to represent the failings and racism of baked into American democracy. Well, first, you agree with that? Is there a way? Is there a single way? Or were they all many of the photographers finding their own ways to, to, to questioning the project?
1: First of all, I think there there's such diversity in the various members' political affiliations or approaches, so I don't think there's a single way that they were thinking about that. But Tony Barboza spoke really clearly about the image, I think it's just titled Pensacola, Florida, but it's liberty, and it's a broken liberty sign. And he talked about how he wouldn't have seen that image had he not joined Kamoinge. So he joined... In 63, he was then drafted into the Navy and he was stationed in Pensacola, Florida, when he made that photograph. And he talked really clearly about how Komoenge taught him how to see, and that he wouldn't have seen that as a photograph without Kamoinge. And he talked in particular about James Baldwin, and he talked about how Kamoenge was so much more than just about photography. It was almost impossible to describe all of the various kind of levels and that entered into the conversation. It was philosophy. It was literature and history. It was painting. It was foreign films. All of these things were part of their lexicon of their conversations. They were constantly circulating books from their own libraries to one another. But Tony in particular talks about Louis Draper telling him, how important literature was. And and James Baldwin was definitely one of their literary heroes in helping you see an image that you can, you can use literature to kind of think about images ahead of time, even as you're finding them in a sort of chance or improvisational mode. And so, you know, of course, Tony can say all of this so much better than I can. But that conversation I had with Tony is one of the frameworks through which I see a number of those photographs.
0: because. So many different photographers were thinking through these issues in so many different ways. I'm just going to name a couple, and maybe you can tell me how you think those pictures engage with the political and cultural moment of Around Their Making. First one, Lewis Draper's 1971 portrait of Fannie Lou Hamer that represents her as a kind of indigenous Central American goddess.
1: (laughs) So- That was an assignment from Essence Magazine. So Louis Draper went down to visit her. And it's actually Nell Draper Winston, Lou's sister, who told me how Lou described that. And then he made the photographs, I think, over a two-day period. And he didn't feel like he had the photograph yet that would make the image for the the story. And then it's just that close-framed photograph. At the end, it was one of the last photographs he made as she emerged to say goodbye from the door that he that he was able to make that very close up photograph. But I also think it is in conversation for me, I think of that in relationship to Tony Barboza's portrait of Grace Jones, which is similarly very closely framed. I can't remember if that was 1970 or 1971. But I think it's important to know there that they worked really closely together. So Tony had a a large studio at that point and Louis Draper was teaching but also working as a studio assistant for a couple of different Comoinge members. So that to me is a great a great example of the way I think that the artists were in dialogue with another with one another aesthetically even if they weren't consciously making decisions even if Louis Draper wasn't thinking about Tony's image of Grace Jones I think that you can see the aesthetic dialogue that they
0: were having. These photographers continued their address of the American Project even after what we think of as the civil rights movement tapered off, at least its peak period tapered off. I'm thinking of a picture like Ming Smith's America Seen Through Stars and Stripes from probably or about 1976.
1: That one for me, I actually associate, even though I don't know that there's an actual connection with James Baldwin's nineteen seventy-six introduction to the Black Photographers Annual, which is a really phenomenal piece of writing that, you know, doesn't get reproduced. And you can you can actually read that. We have the Black Photographers on Black Photographers Annual is digitized and online at BMFA's website at the, on our library website.
0: We'll have links on manpodcast.com.
1: And you can read his essay there, but he is writing this introduction to what would have been the third Black Photographers' Annual, and he makes a point of clarifying that this is the bicentennial year and he has a whole reflection on um, America not growing up. And so it's very hard for me, given the year that that Ming's photograph was made in 1976, not to associate it with that bicentennial year and to think about how often the flags would have been, the show of patriotism that would have been everywhere. And the particular perspective that she's making, which she leaves open when she talks about that photograph, she leaves that interpretation very open. But it's difficult for me to take out of that framework of the bicentennial year and in particular James Baldwin's essay from the Black Photographer's Annual when he's looking specifically at a lot of the photographs that Kamoinge members and other photographers in the annual were, were being reproduced in that particular annual.
0: We talked a little bit earlier about how Aaron Siskind lurks in the background of some of these pictures. If you had to kind of rattle off a couple of significant influences, pictorial influences, who else would you point to?
1: So there's so many. Uh, like I said, the, the Kumange members were so intensely... Interested in the history of both photography and of art history. So if if I go outside of photography, they were most certainly looking at Rembrandt and and a lot of Dutch painters and thinking about their use of light. But within photography, I think Cortez was really important. I think that Imogene Cunningham was really important. Dorothea Lange, I think Minor White.
0: There's a lot of Minor White here.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: See Daniel Dawson and Andrew Cowens and their nudes are, are very much thinking about Weston.
1: Weston, absolutely. And so there's some important connections to think through there. One, Andrew Cowens uh, went to Ohio University, which had one of the first fine art photography programs in the country. And so he was a student there in the 1950s before he joined Kamoinge. And he brought a lot of that formal kind of photography crit session idea to to how they were thinking about the meetings for Kamoinge. And similarly, Louis Draper took classes. Well, he worked as Eugene Smith's studio assistant, and then he also took his classes. And I think may have actually been an assistant for one of them. Photography made difficult and photography made more difficult. So you definitely have Eugene Smith very present in these photographs. And I think Louis Draper learned Eugene Smith's printing style and almost... All of the photographers in Kowenge talk about having a printing session with Lewis Draper and how important his printing sessions were. So you also have that kind of transmission of printing styles through Eugene Smith and other photographers. Harold Feinstein, Lewis Draper studied with, as well as then you have the Museum of Modern Art. So I love her Brandel story. Her Brandel met Lewis Draper because they both took a Harold Feinstein class the workshop. So I think Lou took his first in 1958 and then Herb took his and a friend introduced them to each other. That friendship was really one of the first friendships that is part of this growing network that becomes the Kumunge Workshop. And then Herb Randall was drafted and I believe he served in Germany. And when he came back he worked in a in at Slidochrome and that's where he met Jimmy Manus and he met Alphanar. So he remembers really clearly that he wanted to introduce Alphanar to Louis Draper. And it was at the Museum of Modern Art in the midst of the Harry Callahan and Robert Frank show. And I love the fact that that's where they that that's where they met and where this sort of synergy takes place and they decide to start getting together more often and you get that context of abstraction and of street photography and these two huge influential figures but you also get the sense that the museum of modern art was a really important place for photography and one of the places that they were going often to see to see work
0: we're talking about photographers looking at history both past and present i don't want to close without noting that it's also really clear as i looked through the catalog that you can tell that prominent artists of the present are looking at these pictures. Paul Ampachi, Sapoya, who was recently on the podcast, and B. Ingrid Olson, both, both came to mind. Sarah Eckhart, thanks so much. Thank you. Support comes from Getty. In Recording Artists, a Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Moldsworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Yoko Ono, Ava Hesse, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Alice Neal, and Lee Krasner. Rare interviews from the 60s and 70s, plus new interviews with contemporary artists, help unpack what it meant, and still means, to be a woman making art. Named a binge-worthy art podcast by the New York Times, you can listen now at getty.edu slash recordingartists. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience plays out across 63 mixed media panels. Also at the WEX, Latoya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is art historian Ann Monahan. Her new book, published by Yale University Press, is Horace Pippin, American Modern. Amazon offers it for $32. We have a link on manpodcast.com. In the book, Monaghan presents Pippin not as an outsider or a folk artist, but as fundamentally involved in the art world of his time. Anne Monahan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
0: So Horace Pippin, who made roughly 140 objects from the mid-1920s until his death in 1946, so he, he has a long but not wildly productive career, has often been presented as a primitive, a folk artist, an outsider artist, someone not engaged with or influential within the art world of his time. Are any of those framings useful, meaningful, or correct? And how did you choose to address that question?
2: Yeah, I don't think any of them are. And I think that's really was the fundamental motivation in this project. And I'm not sure that the, those categories are all that productive for many of the people to whom they are made to apply, but they're particularly problematic for him because he was phenomenally ambitious from at least when he returned from World War One, and possibly before that, if you want to trust his autobiographical statements, and he took every possible step he could and worked it (laughs) as hard as he could to make himself a player in the art world, even if he did not necessarily have a really clear sense of the shape of the international art world he was interested in joining. And the reason that he would not have had a really clear sense of that is that he lived in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is now more or less a suburb of Philadelphia, When he lived there, it was more of a discreet small town about an hour outside the city, but it was the sort of a heart of a Philadelphia arts colony, summer arts Mm -hmm. colony. So he had some sense of the art world, like I think from living there and from being adjacent to Philadelphia, but I don't think he really could have in, you know, 1937 had a really clear sense of the larger international field, but he really took every possible care to an advantage to push himself into the mainstream and did you know by the time he died he had over a hundred exhibitions some of them international I would say that you know almost a hundred many with multiple venues so over a hundred across the country and in Europe which is a spectacular record for somebody who'd only been showing nine years even today and in it's just kind of stunning i mean who who does that <laughs> and collectors all over but and when he died prematurely and unexpectedly you know there was very little left in his estate to be sold because he had <laughs> been so much in demand all the way through the 1940s
0: biography have pippin scholars traditionally leaned on or used biography as a way into his work and is that a good or Not great approach as far as you're concerned. He's not
2: alone. I think African-American artists are often viewed through a biographical lens as if everything they do is a reflection of their own experience. And that's even more true of self-taught artists. So the fact that he's been subject to that model is par for the course. I think it's really reductive. I mean, I'm not the first person to say that it's, there's been a real anxiety about the idea of viewing artists through an exclusively biographical lens for some time, particularly self-taught Black artists. But that doesn't stop people because Pippin has a really dramatic life story and people like it. (laughs) And so they like to attach that to everything that they see In his work. And I think the fact that he has a very direct style and he made some statements that give you the that sort of invite you to see his work in autobiographical terms doesn't help things. But when you take a step back and look at the work first you see how carefully constructed it is in, in so many cases, that, that there isn't a kind of a transparent link necessarily between his life and the images that he makes. He was working with lots of goals in mind, I think, to be part of a larger art conversation, to be attractive to buyers. He he was attracting deep-pocketed buyers from 1939. So he his first big show, his first His first professional show was in 1937, and by 1939, he was selling work for like serious art market prices. And once that happened, he was pretty clear um, about where, you know, how to how to maximize his career. And I think, to some extent, the choices of work that he made were because he expected to sell it to people with money. And so those choices don't have anything to do with his own life you know, fly fisherman, I don't, there's no evidence that he was a fly fisherman. There's no evidence that he hunted foxes on horseback as a painting of his, you know, depicts. He just had much more Catholic tastes and interests than, you know, viewing things strictly through his life story would give you a sense of.
0: Uh, let's jump into the work. Across much of the 1930s, the 1930s, Pippin made work about World War One, which did not happen in the 1930s. Why was Pippin so into making work about the First World War a decade plus on?
2: If you don't mind, I'm going to take a step back. So he served in World War One, which was, you know, deeply traumatic for most of the servicemen in Europe. He was a member of the 369th Regiment, which was one of the four black regiments to see combat duty. That like disproportionately black soldiers served. In the American Expeditionary Forces, but only four regiments fought because of racist restrictions on the part of the American military. So he was at the front for most, for longer than, you know, most American troops. And he was wounded in November, in September. It disabled his arm for the rest of his life. And when he came back, he started writing about the war experience immediately. Uh, in a few kind of manuscripts, one of which is illustrated, and all of which are in the collection of the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, he was already kind of aware. I think when he came back that the war was something that would allow him to speak to a broader public, and those manuscripts are written in a way that he—it's clear he's thinking about a reader. They're not. They often get described as like journals, but he made them after the war. And he's talking to a dear reader in a few places. So he's thinking about a public. And around that time, a number of his colleagues from the comrades, I guess is a better word, from the 369th were publishing memoirs. So I think he he understood that this was a way to reach a broader public. And this gets at the ambition that I mentioned early on that, you know, drove him. But he realized that writing wasn't Gonna do it for him, and he says later that he, you know, moved on to other media. And so through the 1920s, he was making these panels that were landscapes. He would burn them with a hot poker into a wood panel, and then he would add paint. Uh, but they were not about the war. And I think that it's because the war is a complicated image for him, literally to realize like there's a lot of moving pieces to a compelling war image. And I don't think he thought that that those panels were the right. Vehicle to realize that. And so at the end of the 1920s, he decides to paint his first painting right, on canvas with multiple colors. And it's a war painting. And it's much bigger than the panels he'd been painting. And it's a much more complicated and dense image than he had been making. And I think that he realized that he needed to be a painter on fabric. He eventually takes up canvas, but early on he's painting more on like muslin, like a bedsheet kind of because he understood that the war was needed a bigger kind of format and platform. And he made a few more war paintings, not that many, actually, in the 1930s, but almost immediately also started painting other subjects. But the war paintings were immediately successful. When he shows at the Museum of Modern Art in 1938, three of the paintings he shows there are war paintings. So people like that story about him. You know, You can see that the curators of that show, which was a show about self-taught artists, like this idea of a disabled veteran who's painting, you know, his traumatic experience. And it's not that he hadn't done that. But by that point, he'd also painted a number of other, you know, subjects. And then that biographical narrative kind of follows him for the rest of his life. And then late in his life, he starts painting war subjects again, from his own experience of World War One. But sort of in the meantime, he lets the war kind of his own World War I experience, kind of take a back seat. Depictions of World War Two, because that's where he was living through. More like patriotic paintings about supporting the war effort in the States.
0: So you mentioned that Pippin returns to war paintings during World War Two In 1945, he makes a painting titled The Barracks. Is that a World War Two painting? Is that a World War One painting? And what does it suggest to us that Pippin is... Dealing with as a painter at that moment?
2: I think it's both a World War II painting and a World War I painting. Or maybe more accurately, it's a World War II painting about World War I. As I mentioned, he fought with the 369th, which was a which was unusual for black soldiers. And in World War II, black soldiers were also segregated. More of them were fighting, but there was still this idea that, you know, they could not fight alongside or, you know, as part of integrated regiments. And there had been a lot of pushes for more desegregation of the army and the military racist questions had been dogging black servicemen in World War I and II about their fitness were white soldiers more dependable or whatever, just all kinds of racist ideas. And I feel like that painting that he's making, which is very large, he did not make a lot of paintings that big, is meant to show how the fitness of his comrades, because they were living under unspeakable conditions in the bear, in the dugouts at the front. And the, that's what the painting depicts. It depicts four men in an underground bunker who would have been subject at that point, at any point, to being uh, shelled and poisoned by gas. And what you see on the bottom of the painting are two men sitting on their bunks pulling lice off their clothing because that was a endemic problem in the trenches. And not only was it disgusting, but it also was causing disease. And so they were just vulnerable on every level. But when you see them, as he depicts them, three of them are, are just making the making do, like holding up under unspeakable pressure, and the fourth one you can see is not. And I think that's the, the message that he's trying to convey is the dependability and the heroism of the troops with whom he served, and then by extension, the black troops who would be fighting in World War II and the respect that they deserve and you know the equality that they merit. And so I feel like, so, you know, he reaches back to his own experience, I think, to make a case in that painting for contemporary black servicemen.
0: I think Pippin's other best known series of paintings are his remarkable, great paintings of populated interiors in in home interiors with people in them. What motivated and informed them?
2: What has come up when I've been writing this book more than once from people who know Pippin's work has been this idea of a typical pippin. They often tell me that they're, you know, they're looking for a typical pippin or that I don't know what a typical pippin is. I don't really know honestly what a typical pippin is because if you know his work there it's it's quite diverse. But what I think they mean are these domestic interiors filled with black families. And the interesting part of this phrase typical pippin associated with those paintings is that those paintings comprise a very small Sort of slice of his career, although they're the best known, as you point out. So he first made a painting of a black family in the painting that belongs to the Art Institute called Cabin in the Cotton, which he according to his one of his statements that hadn't been found until very recently and it's in the book that was his second painting ever he made his first painting was the the end of the war starting home which belongs to the philadelphia museum which is the one that sort of prompted his shift to painting on fabric and away from wood and then the second painting he took up presumably like shortly thereafter was this painting of a black family a elderly woman and a toddler in the yard of a cabinet on the grounds of a cotton farm. And in the statement that he wrote in 1938, he said that it was based on someone he'd mother or grandmother, maybe, and child, the writing is unclear, that he'd seen in Spartanburg, South Carolina. So he really did not spend, he's not from the South. He did not. The only time that I know that he was in Spartanburg, South Carolina, was when he was posted there for an abbreviated stay with his regiment to train for deployment in World War I. So it's not clear if he knew those people or if he just observed that family, but he did not really paint black families again until he became a professional artist at the end of the 1930s. And it's I would argue that he starts doing it because he sees the popular response to Cabin in the Cotton, and he starts to paint more cabin scenes, both with white people and black people in them, and they get bought pretty enthusiastically by Albert Barnes, among other people. He's one of the first, can, most avid collectors of this kind of work, and he's buying practically every example that Pippin makes in nineteen in the early, like in 1940, he bought, in 1941, he buys a few, and that, I think, encourages Pippin to see the appeal of this work in ways that he hadn't really tapped into in the 1930s when he didn't have a, a very developed market. And then in 1944, he paints a bunch of them for his first big show at the Downtown Gallery. This would have been his second solo show in New York, but it was his first show at Edith Halpert's Downtown Gallery. And he put several Black family paintings in there, and they become very well regarded. And they now have become kind of iconic to the point that that they define his body of work. And then he sort of phased them out. Within a couple of years he sort of he made a number of them between forty three and forty four and then he really phases them out. And in a way the the barracks that I just was discussing is is kind of a different slant on the domestic interior, right? That's like a domestic interior with black soldiers instead of his family or people like his family would have been, because that's what the sort of earlier paintings are all set around the turn of the century. Some of the figures in them seem to be corresponding to his own, you know, immediate family. Some of them don't. So it's a little hard to sort of match them up exactly all the way down the line. But they seem to relate to sort of a nostalgic impulse that sort of takes a different kind of form in the barracks.
0: As you mentioned earlier, Pippin was born outside Philadelphia, Westchester, Pennsylvania. And he grew up in uh, a town in New York that's between the Southern Catskills and the Northern Hudson Highlands. So you mentioned Cabin in the Cotton now in Chicago was his second painting. What led him to make a painting about the South?
2: So his his mother and his mother, let's just leave it at that. It's not clear. His, His father's name has not been recorded, was from West Virginia, was from Charlestown, West Virginia. She was a free black woman and her family had been free black before her. And she came to Westchester in eighteen seventies and uh he was born in eighteen eighty eight there and so they the family itself does not have west West Virginia, which is where Charlestown is, is not a cotton growing area, so the family had no ties to the South or cotton production, and they were and his family had not his mother's family, which is the only one we can really be clear about had no cotton farming experience. So it's not a you know, a personal connection. His wife's family was from North Carolina, where cotton had been grown, although when he would have been visiting her there after 1920, when they were married, he did go to Durham, North Carolina in 1925, which is the area more or less where she lived. There was cotton. There had been cotton grown there, but it, it's not a big plantation state, North Carolina and Cotton itself had been mostly phased out by that point. So again, it's not clear that he would have seen it through her family. This time when he was deployed in 1918, briefly to Spartanburg, the reason it was, it was supposed to be a much longer stay, the 369th was sent there to train. And then the people of South Carolina in that area of Spartanburg were very upset to see armed black men training in the military. And so they made the experience quite hostile for the black soldiers and the black soldiers were shipped out quickly. So I think he was only there for a couple of weeks, but that is the only, you know, clear evidence that we have that he could have seen cotton like in the fields in a substantial way. So like on a brief trip through Spartanburg. So it's really not clear what motivated this commitment to the subject of cotton in 1932, or so when he started that painting. But what motivates it later is that people really love this idea that he's painting cotton farms and encourage him to, to do more by commissioning more work in that vein. I have never found a satisfactory explanation for why that subject meant so much to him in 1932. But when you look at the painting at the Chicago Art Institute, it's really obsessively detailed.
0: Yeah, let me let me jump in about that for a quick second. It's painted in shallow relief. And uh, we'll have images that show that on on manpodcast.com. Why is it obsessively detailed that way? Why did this is as far as I know the first time he, he he does that and and texture remains important in his work often thereafter but never like this so why how where?
2: actually it's a manifestation of his super early work. so the painting at the Philadelphia Museum well they have several but the the end of the war starting home is even more thickly painted. You know, he said anecdotally, so I'm not, you know, or people have said on his behalf anecdotally that he, you know, painted like a hundred layers of paint on that. He, he worked on the one in Philadelphia for three years and it's inscribed as such on the back. So when you see it, the figures all project as reliefs, like unmistakably. And he, started the Cabin in the Cotton painting more or less at the same time and applies more or less the same technique to it. But it's a it's a tinier, physically smaller composition. And so the relief elements are, you know, more delicately scaled. But you can tell that he was repainting that one even later, I would say, than 1933, because the sky, the clouds in that painting are sharp, sharp, bright white, which is Typical of the work that he was doing once he got a hold of artists' paints. When you look at the whites in the end of the war starting home, they're creamier because I would argue, but I have not, nobody's done the testing to make sure that it's the case, that they're lead whites, maybe from house paint. There were reports that he used house paint initially before he, you know, had access to artists' colors before he started using canvas Then in the middle 1930s, you can see that he gets artist paints and then he goes back and he starts to touch up the whites in the earlier paintings, including, I would say, the sky in Cabin in the Cotton, because he likes that crisp, bright white and all the sharp colors that he can get from artist paints. And so that means he was painting Cabin in the Cotton, like from, say, like, let's say 1930, 31, when he started, 32, whatever, and then eventually retouched it at least one more time in the mid 1930s when he's doing this repainting campaign on a bunch of early paintings. But it's that repainting, that serial repainting that gives you that dimensional surface. And the door of the cabin in Cabin in the Cotton is actually less thickly painted than the cabin itself. So there's a depression in the painting where the door would be. But also when you look at the farmyard of that painting, it looks like he had had spent time in a In a working farmyard, which is again said, he's not from an agricultural family, he's not from the South, he lived his whole life in Pennsylvania or New York. And so it's not clear where he would have acquired that kind of, but it looks to me like firsthand knowledge. Like he really understands what you would find in a farmyard, different kinds of fencing, different, like a compost pile, like. He's very sensitive to all of those details. And then later, 10 years later, when he starts that work again at the request of, you know, corporate patrons, mostly, he then like remixes all that material. So the first time it feels like he like really it's almost documentary in the sense that he's reporting something that he's seen and the way these farms actually work. And then when he revisits it, it's more formal like deployment of put a, getting the pieces, but not necessarily trying to show you exactly what that world looked like firsthand. Again, I don't it were possible to know where he spent this kind of time on a southern farm. And especially Spartanburg. It, an early news account says that his wife was from Spartanburg. But so presumably he told the reporter that. But I have found, you know, I spoke to her relatives. They say that they were from North Carolina. That's what the census documents indicate. So I don't know where the Spartanburg connection comes in. Maybe she did have family there and he did spend time on a farm there, but there is no record of it. In
0: 1941, Pippin made a painting titled The Whipping. It's at the Reynolda house in North Carolina. It's a red, white, and blue painting of a white man whipping a figure, which the viewer inevitably reads as being a Black person, albeit of indeterminate sex. What prompted the painting in 1941? 1941? And did Pippin build on it, so to speak, or or even have the opportunity to build on it?
2: That painting is one of his most explicit about anti-Black violence, right? Like there are implicit sort of threads of this all the way through his work. Only that one, I would say, is like, as soon as you see it, you realize exactly what he's saying. And it comes at us at this moment, and it's easy to see it even in the, the materials as well as the subject, where he's, I would say, aware of his growing position. Because he just had uh, two shows, In 1940. In January, he had a show in Philadelphia at the Carlin Gallery made him a sort of a sensation It made like Newsweek magazine. It was a big deal. And he had sold out of everything in that show. And among the things that he'd sold out of in that show were all of the burnt wood panels that he'd made in the 1920s that he had on hand. He showed them in Philadelphia, they all sold. And he had really stopped making those panels. From what I can tell, when he started painting, he'd stopped with the wood panels. But they all sold out in 1940. And so he started making them again, briefly in this window between 1940 and 1941. So he's making them with an audience of potential collectors in mind this time. The first group, he did not have that luxury. The second group, he knows he's speaking to a market and he knows he's speaking to a public because he's done a ton of press interviews over the 1940. So I have to think, and and many of the panels that he makes in that period are like hunting, there's duck hunting one, there's a ice fishing one, there's maple sugar, like maple sugaring one. So they're you know, landscapes or people enjoying the landscape. And then there's this one, which is the exact opposite. It is people in a forbidding landscape, just showing the worst side of humanity in this way that would seem to sort of speak back to his Cabin in the Cotton painting on a certain level. And then although that woman that he saw, he seems to have known, so she would not have you know, in the the woman in the cabin in the cotton would, was not an enslaved person in that painting. She was a contemporary figure from his memory. And then possibly these paintings that he made of families at home that he was selling to Albert Barnes, black families in cabins, they're sort of from a period that you can't quite pin down. They could be from the turn of the 20th century. They could be older. They're wearing kind of clothes that are too generic to be sure. So obviously he wants to say something like he wants to say something pretty pointed to the country about its history. And then the painting, you know, is never quite finds a sort of a safe harbor. It gets shown a lot partly because it doesn't get sold, you know, consistently it gets sold and then sent back to the gallery. And so it gets shown everywhere. Really it's one of his more popular paintings for that reason, but it doesn't find a buyer and it doesn't really, it doesn't seem to encourage him to make more work that explicit. At the end of his life, he makes arguably his most famous paintings, these holy mountain paintings. He makes three of them and they are based on the prophecy of Isaiah in which the animals of that would naturally be enemies can live together in harmony. And in the background of a couple of those, he includes shapes that are lynched bodies. But you really have to look hard to find those figures. They are very hard to see in the woods behind the foreground. So those are more images of racial violence, but in a way that's not nearly as explicit as the whipping panel, which seems, an you know, is anomalous in that, in that way. He makes one of his commissions, not that long after the whipping, is about is called Old Black Joe and it's it was about a Stephen Foster song about an enslaved man who's thinking about the afterlife. And that painting seems to want to talk to the whipping in a way, which I was which is like the the soil in both of them is red. So like I don't know whether he was trying to say something about like the soil of the south just being red, which I think it can be in places, or he was trying to say something about a blood-drenched soil associated with cotton plantation life and slavery. It's oblique. The figure in the foreground of the whipping is is in no way oblique. Ex- except that, as you point out, you really can't even tell whether it's a man or a woman. it's that figure has been so abused that it's it's a placeholder for just you know, I think, a person of color who's been just violated so profoundly.
0: Pippin's landscape paintings are, are fascinating. I'm, as far as I can recall uh, and figure, it's Pippin, uh, along with Aaron Douglas, who introduces landscapes uh, inhabited by black people into the American landscape tradition. And a lot of what you just said suggests he he, he may well have been aware of his pioneeringness, if you will. In, uh, in the late 1930s, it appears that or feels like Pippin becomes interested in taking on the great subjects of American art landscape I just mentioned, but also the great subjects of European art, such as the nude and a few other art historical standards beside. I gather this was a um, a, a conscious decision, kind of that measuring up that artists like to do.
2: Well, I, I can only say what the art says because the way Pippin's story has been told has tried to, and I think partly by him, but also by spokespeople on his behalf, has tried to accentuate his distance from art history. That was for the white collectors and curators who took pride in their recognition of his talent early. It was important to them that he be a total sort of cultural isolate, because that made their recognition of his genius all the more prestigious. And so they often cast his story in that way, that he knew nothing before they happened upon him. And that was his great advantage and their great genius. But in fact, the work suggests, when you look at three, three or four paintings from this period, that he was looking at... At work in Philadelphia museums, actually, probably. The most clear example of that is is in two paintings that he painted on unprimed canvas. And so for people who don't know what I mean by that, most of the time, artists take a canvas and then coat it with whatever kind of treatment they like, some sort of combination of paint and sort of other materials to create a smooth surface that keeps the paint that they're painting from leaching into the fabric right so that so the paint just sits on the surface that is the standard way artists prepare canvases pippin very early in his career didn't know that because that's something you learn somebody has to teach you and so the paint leached through his canvases and you can see the back of them many of those works have since been treated by conservators and we can't see the backs of them anymore. But there are two that he painted in the later 1930s where he still wasn't sizing or you know priming his com- his canvases. And those let you see what his first idea was. So you can compare his first idea with his last idea, which would be what shows up on the front. And in particular, there's one that's now in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum called The Getaway which shows that his first idea about the composition was this fox standing on a hill, which looks a lot like a painting that he would have seen by the painter N.C. Wyeth, who had taken an active interest in his career and had helped Pippin get into his first show and possibly helped him select the work that he submitted for that show. So it would not at all be strange that he would have taken an interest in Wyeth's fox painting and perhaps found it an inspiration for his own. But by the time the painting is finished, it looks way more like a famous painting called The Fox Hunt by Winslow Homer that's in the the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia, which shows a running fox who is in that painting is being chased by crows. And so the sort of way that narrative has always been understood is that the fox who would normally be the predator is now the prey of these crows in a very bleak winter landscape. But pippin's painting shows a running fox with a crow in his mouth so it seems like he knows the homer story and also has flipped it around because to make it into really fabulous it's a really great fox in the painting and then it's also a really great take on what that story should be and it also shows you how pippin is thinking about where he can put his work in a sort of a larger arc right like he's at a museum. He's looking at the work of Homer. He's a historical example. He's looking at the work of Wyeth, a contemporary example, and he's kind of combining them in a way that puts his work on the map. And he does this around the same time with the painting called The Lady of the Lake, which is his only nude subject. And by this point, he would have seen if he was at the Pennsylvania Academy a uh, nude painting of Ariadne on the Isle of Naxos, which is a life-size nude painting. You, if you go to the Pennsylvania Academy, you can't miss it. Yeah, John Vanderlyn—it's a—it's a fabulous painting, right? Like it's just an amazing painting. So again, he had a really great eye because he's at the academy and he's looking at Homer's fox hunt and Vanderlyn's Ariadne, like two of the gems of the collection, and then kind of figuring out how to interpolate those ideas into his own practice, which is all to say this is—you know. whole dimension of his work that really can't be accounted for with this idea of him as a self-taught artist working out of just, you know, his feelings in the corner of his living room. It shows you how he was making very considered progress, deliberate efforts to position himself in the, you know, contemporary art world alongside Wyeth. And you can see in like the 1930s he's he makes a big mountain landscape that you know looks like he's been looking at European landscape painting. And then kind of by the 1940s he's synthesized all those influences in ways that they're much less easy to pick out, right? Like by the 1940s he's really found a stride where he can take all of that in and filter it through his own ideas. And and it's a lot harder to point out which comes from a European landscape tradition or, you know, a female nude, but it's all kind of informing his project.
0: That's interesting because I've always read the lady of the lake, which is dated to 3639 as Pippin Americanizing a European tradition. So the Vanderlyn we talked about earlier is from around 1810, 1815. It's very much an American doing a European painting as Washington Alston and other Americans were then doing. There's nothing particularly American about the Vanderlyn except for the country, except for that Vanderlyn was was, was American. Uh, Whereas Pippin in his Lady of the Lake, he appears to be, at least to me, to putting together the great American subject, the, the landscape with two readily identifiable kind of features of classic American landscape painting a lake and a mountain or mountains with with the European subject the nude and lots of other references to America such as to Native American tapestries rugs and throwing them all together and creating something new out of them. so anyway that's that yeah that's 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 fascinating Anne Monahan, thanks very much
2: thank you it's been a pleasure
0: that's all for this week's show